Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. All right, so uh, we're carrying on with getting to grips with the Bible for now until such times as we think we're done. Um, I think all that's been done is, is, is very interesting. Of course, last week I talked a little bit about in answering the questions, which incidentally I was answering the questions last week. Uh, but we also talked about where that led as we talked about the golden thread that runs through it. I want to pick up that theme a little bit more um, tonight and also to run you into <coughs> some comments about the New Testament. Uh, I was saying to Chris, I want to be uh, careful not to, not to overload you with, with, um, with detail, but then on the other hand, we don't want to underload you because I think these things are important. It's very easy, in a sense, from a lazy mind to say, I don't really need to know that stuff. It doesn't really affect me. But, but the truth is, it does. It affects all of us. Because um, uh, what we're in, in terms of serving God and following Jesus, involves the Bible. And that's a good thing. Because again, as I said to you last week, uh, our conversation is in no way um, diminishing the Bible it is taking the Bible off the pedestal of being equal to God, because it's not, okay? It's not in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God. It's in the beginning was the Word and the Word is Jesus. So, so we, we kind of, yes, we are relegating the Bible a little bit, but in relegating it from a place it shouldn't have, we also want to honor it for the place that it does have. Because without it, we would be bereft of a lot of the um, information that leads us through to where we are and helps us to understand Christ and, uh, and uh, how to understand spirit and, uh, and what all that means. So, so uh, I also wanted to talk a bit tonight um, just about some of the problems faced and show you how it didn't matter whether you were X thousand years before Jesus or 2,000 years after. The, the, the pressures that we face in the context of our journey are exactly the same, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so, controversial thing, Chris. I think Chris has done a great job talking about these four aspects of writers. It certainly opened my eyes um, a great deal to some things that I, I, I hadn't really given a lot of time and attention to. And uh, has helped me to, to deal with what I now see as <clears throat> some apparent contradictory things in the Bible. It's helped me to understand how these things were written, why they were written. Um, <clears throat> but Chris raised one thing that, that, that is quite controversial, which is the whole issue of of um, these people in the beginning, uh, it appears being not monotheistic, one God, but actually polytheistic. So wrestling with some issues like, you know, our God is great among the gods. Now, I have a view of that that, that may differ to some, um, but um, it, it is something we have to wrestle with because historically that, that does seem to be a factor that plays part, and of course Chris talked about the fact that then among the gods, Yahweh becomes their, their, their God. Now, 
it's so easy not to understand this um, if you pull it out of its cultural location. And that's critical to understanding, really, how, how not only the Old Testament works, but how the New Testament works. And I'm going to give you a little example of that um, in a moment. Um, so gods have always been in the mind and culture of people wrestling with the understanding of the divine, of the spiritual, of the world, etc. So when you get outside of Hebrew culture, uh, you don't suddenly find a situation where you don't have gods anymore. So, so gods are not, are not um, a, a sole invention or prerogative of the Hebrews. That The whole idea of gods was, was spread across culture in the ancient world and, and is still today. We just don't call them gods in the same way, but, but they actually are still gods, whether it's gods of alcohol or self or whatever. It's still the same thing. Um, so, so this point about, about um, gods being in the mind and the culture and people wrestling with it um, shouldn't be flippantly dismissed in considering the spiritual journey of the people we know as Hebrew and the nation we know as Israel. So they're wrestling with this whole thing and all the pressures that, that go along with it. Now, what I want to look at a little more is, is uncoupling this from what I believe to be its borrowed and integrated influences from pre and post um, cultures. So, so you understand that, for example, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy weren't written at the time. They weren't kind of writing it as they went. Okay, so so the writing comes later. So so there are there are thoughts that go pre the writing, okay, and there are thoughts then that come post the writing because pre it's then influenced by what we've integrated from our limited understanding. Um, and the cultures that surround us, and then post, it's being in, in, influenced by people with some agendas who now want us to think a certain way about gods. Now, because what I said to you is we, most of us were, were, had that hidden from us because we were kind of given this thing that God turned up and everybody just believed there was one God and because there was one God, we all followed the one God and therefore the Hebrews never had any agenda. They were the pure people of God. So if God says kill those people, we kill those people because we obey God. We, never, we were never exposed to any concept that something might have been going on here in their own journey. Um, I read something in preparing for tonight that again, it staggered me. This guy was trying to make the case for for uh, um, instructions in the Old Testament that were put at God's door to annihilate. And um, he said, well, you've got to bear in mind, though, that it wasn't really genocide because some of these places that we talk about, you know, there were so many million Canaanites, but some of these places probably had 17,000 people in them. So, you know, out of... Out of, out of Several million, 17,000 people is not that many. It's like, and that's your case for excusing, you know, like, well, we can lose a few. It doesn't really matter, you know. So, so it wasn't really genocide. It's like, well, you know, well, what is it? You know, mini genocide, child genocide. I don't know. So you get all these crazy arguments because 
We don't understand how to wrestle with this. And I think because of a genuine fear that we might be dishonoring God. But for me, when you know this, you find the real God, the, the one who we call the Abba of Jesus, the one who David encountered, the one who Abraham encountered. And uh, I want to talk about that for a, a few minutes as we, um, as we move through, through tonight. So let, let me just give you an illustration of, of how even in modern times... Uh, we can encounter difficulties because of things that are written, okay? So I've got a picture for you. It's the real sad 50-year um, uh, anniversary since the Aberfan disaster. How many of you remember that? So you've got to be at least 50 to remember that. You've got to be more than 50. Uh, where all the school kids in this little Welsh village you know, in the school, basically were wiped out apart from three kids. Very, very sad. Um, I felt quite close to it again because of my roots in, um, you know, in being the son of a coal miner and my father being involved in accidents, you know. So I remember as a, as a, uh, as a 10-year-old watching this on the news, 1966. But uh, this was one of the um, pictures around the time in the newspaper uh, these four boys had started working the pit, but listen to this. No work and still pay makes die a gay boy. These four trainees from Merthervale Colliery, undismayed at the news that winding had stopped, make their carefree way home with lunch boxes still unopened, and then it gives their name. So, apparently, not working and still getting paid makes you a gay boy. Now, many of you know that what that meant in 1966, that wouldn't mean now if you wrote exactly the same thing. In fact, how many of you know that, that right now you'd probably be, be in trouble for discrimination for saying that somebody was gay because they weren't working and were getting paid and so you called them gay? So, so that's 50 years, okay? So in just 50 years, that one phrase means something completely different to us now than it did then. I, I always laughed, you know, growing up because I was kind of becoming aware of how language was changing. And, uh, and you looked at a lot of these, particularly Christian, Christian storybooks, talking about, uh, uh, about the sheep gaily playing in the field. You know, or the, or the lambs gaily prancing. And it's, it's, just, it's just one interesting factor to show us how in a very short period of time, uh, a phrase can mean something completely different. So we have to bear in mind when we're talking about the Bible that if you don't put it within its culture and within its time and, and, and look at who this is addressed to and what is the particular issue it is being addressed and what did that issue mean at the time, then the problem is you can make the same mistake that we have with our picture, that it means something completely different to us. So I just thought it was a great illustration to help us um, see how meanings have to be seen through the immediate culture. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Moses first. <coughs> Moses. Um, question in the Bible, particularly when you come from the angle we've come is, is should we take the Bible literally or is the Bible allegorical? You understand allegorical, that means it's pictures about something else, pictures with another meaning that doesn't mean it really necessarily happened, 
but it's written that way to illustrate something. Now, it's a funny one, this, because I'm, I kind of sit between the two. I think, well, why does it have to be either or? I think, I think some of the things are literal, um, but then if you were to take literal our picture, uh, then Dyer's become gay because, because he was given the day off work and paid, right? So if you're going to take it literal by today's standards, not by, not by 1966, even the literal meaning is something completely different. So, you know, how many of you were raised with the, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. So, so we got ourselves into some trouble because we didn't take that into account. So I sit somewhere in between. I think, I think even within literal stories, there are, there are very often and most often allegorical meanings. So meanings that are bigger than the story. Remember our illustration from last week and from Saturday night about the sunrise. You know, We describe what we see, but there are meanings beyond that that actually have a greater truth. So I think, I think the scripture is a very clever book because I think, I think it intertwines the two. Uh, but sometimes also we have to be willing to say that may not be literal. Or if it is literal, it might not literally have been God that said do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so we have to weigh these things through a, through a proper lens now. So, so I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 3 in just a moment. <coughs> and um, Moses is, you know the story of Moses. He's, he's, he's born to a Hebrew family. And um, that Hebrew family are in, in Egypt. And at that time, the the the, the Pharaoh's getting rid of all the boys under two, so uh, uh, Moses' mother puts him in, a, in a, a pitched basket, puts him on the Nile is the story, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes him into her household. Now, she knows he's a Hebrew. How do you know she knows he's a Hebrew? Because he's circumcised. She knows he's a Hebrew, but she takes him in and gathers him into that culture, so... So uh, Moses finishes up schooled in, in all the ways of Egypt. So he was a pretty clever, smart, sharp guy. But then, you know, you get through the story where Moses sees an Egyptian beating up one of his own people and he's still got a heart for the people because lo and behold, his mother has been his nurse when he was growing up in Pharaoh's house with Pharaoh's daughter, his mother finished up being his nurse. So it's a, it's a very nice story. <coughs> and um, probably true in one context or another. I say in one context or another because historically it's difficult to find or, or show what this captivity in Egypt was or when it was, but that doesn't really matter to me because uh, that's not the key detail to all of this. So, within this, uh, Moses then uh, kills the Egyptian who was beating up the Hebrew, buries him in the sand, because realizes if this is found out, he's done for, so he runs away. And he finishes up in the desert, and um, he finishes up meeting a guy called Jethro, who was a priest of Midian, um, who it's very doubtful whether he was priest of God as we understand God to be. Uh, but Moses is in his family, he marries his daughter, and, uh, and then one day while he's kind of got this 
other life now where he's, he's a shepherd for his, for his father-in-law. Moses is out in the desert and uh, he encounters a bush that's burning. This is all in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read some verses in a minute because, because there's some important things to see. He encounters a bush that's burning. But what um, catches his eye is the bush is burning but it's not being consumed. So it's on fire but it's not, it's not being devoured by the fire. Now, um, I, I personally believe that's one of the things we were talking about on Saturday night when I talked about sacred space. That Moses had found a sacred space and, uh, and a voice starts to speak to him out of the bush. He can seem right nutty when you get these sacred space. Sometimes I was out there and the bush talked to me. Um, which of course is a Good joke about the American presidency of, uh, you know, George Bush going to, to heaven and Moses didn't want to talk to him. So when he was asked why, he said, well, look what happened to me the last time I talked to a Bush. So anyway, that's a silly joke. I shortened it out so I didn't want to bore you with the whole thing. But a sacred moment, no doubt, absolutely a sacred moment that um, I, I could argue that we are now still benefiting from that. Forget, you know, just, just Hebrew heritage into Jewish heritage. Um, this was part of our spiritual journey of understanding the Christ because there are things in here that, that far exceed any limited nationalistic understanding you know, for a small group of people. So, so I think at this burning bush, it, it, it is addressing one of the questions that, that has been raised here, which is the question of how many gods? Um, are there other gods? And if there are, how many gods? Well, um, there was definitely some confusion in, in Hebrew understanding in the context of Elohim and Yahweh, and, um, you know, names that some of you will be familiar with, you know, that um, uh, Yahweh, of course, the, uh, the, the more familiar term we're used to is Jehovah. You know, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Rophe, you've got, you know, all of those names. That there was some issue in there of them trying to resolve this, um, this problem. And um, uh, I think God was challenging the kind of ball and cups approach to Hebrew understanding. You know, the, you know the ball and cups trick. It's like, which God's going to pop up next? Is it Elohim? Is it Jehovah? Now, if you were raised like me, they were all the same. But if you really research it, you'll find that that wasn't necessarily and essentially the reality in the minds of the, the Hebrews. You know, so all the God who sits among the gods and all those kind of scriptures that that you have were, were exposing uh, an unresolved conflict that really came from the, the intermingling of cultures and the borrowing, the borrowing of ideas, the borrowing of stories. We talked a little bit about that last week with the flood. So Exodus chapter three, let me talk for a, just a few minutes on this. Okay, let, me let me read it to you. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. <clears throat> and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, in 
a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now, angel of the Lord's interest, and I'll let her talk about that. Um, appeared to him from the flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. To your sacred place, sacred space. <coughs> Excuse me. Moreover, he said, now this is where it gets interesting. I am the God, Elohim, in the Hebrew, of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon Elohim, God. Okay. Now therefore behold, verse 9, now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Elohim, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will uh, certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people of Egypt out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. They don't want to cough all over you. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, let me just hold just for a second. Because that's an interesting question, isn't it? When I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? That one verse there is really interesting because if it was unquestionably monotheistic and everybody was utterly convinced of the nature of God individually, then that question would be defunct. So they're wanting to find, in the context of all that's going on, particularly in the context now of Elohim and, and, and Yahweh, who was it? Who, who, who sent you? Which, which, which of whatever it is that we believe in sent you? So, and God said to Moses, and this is interesting, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this is interesting because we haven't come across that way of defining the divine God. This, this is different. I am has sent me to you. Now, now, verse 15 says this, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord Yahweh, God, Elohim, of your fathers, okay? So the Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. 
But this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Now this is where I believe a grave mistake is made when we give no room for this. Was God saying, my name is Elohim? Was God saying, my name is Yahweh, Jehovah? Or had God introduced something new into the equation now? My name is, I am. Why did he have to refer to himself as I am? Because of the depth of confusion surrounding the personality, the nature, and the identity of God that had grown up around Elohim and Yahweh, God has to redefine himself. And the way he defines himself is not according to a religious model or a religious name, but according to a statement. He stated his nature, not his name, but he wanted his nature to be his name. And so he says to Moses, tell them, not Yahweh sent you because immediately the brain's going one way, or Elohim because the brain's going the other way. He says, let's throw a curveball here. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. And this phrase, I am who I am, is, is, is interesting. Um, it, it's funny, really, because the, you can't translate this literally into English without having extremely bad English. Because the, the literal English would be, I am amming who I am amming. Which is that in, in Hebrew you can put this, it means I am so present right now that, that I am one with the moment. I am one with the nature around me. I am one with you. I am one with everything. I am one with the universe that's being created. I am amming who I am amming. Or in other words, the Almighty is right here, present, in, in, and really, the, the issue of what he's saying is, is my presence, my presence, right? He's trying to break them away from the models that they have had. So I personally believe that, that when he says, it, Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me to you? And he said, tell them, I am sent me to you. Now let's forget that part of verse 15 at the beginning and say, this is my name forever, right? This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. How can it be a memorial to all generations? Because to Moses he was I am, to Abraham he was I am, to me he is I am, to you he is I am. So we have a third name of God introduced into the equation here that flies beneath the radar of all these people who are influencing the writing of the Bible, the Elohists, the Deuteronomists, the Yahwehs, the priestly writers. This is flying under the radar, and this comes into this territory here when we talked about the trajectory of the golden thread. So God himself is showing up, but what he's saying is, you think I'm Yahweh? You think I'm Elohim? Now, you could be a believer in Elohim and still meet the Abba of Jesus. You could be a believer in Yahweh and still meet the Abba of Jesus. But the Abba of Jesus was not, I propose, Yahweh or Elohim. The Abba of Jesus was this I am who turned up in the desert this day and said, no, you've pushed this into a borrowed model. 
They said, well, what do you mean by a borrowed model? Because if you look at the ancient writings of other cultures of the time and their gods, you will find these incredible similarities. You even find an overlapping of stories. We said last week that the flood story is not unique to the Bible, to the book of Genesis. You know, you find it in several other stories in Mesopotamia and in, and in, um, in um, some, the Sumerian culture, Babylonian culture. You find these stories that have intermingled. Now, that's because I believe if something happened, it happened and you write about it, their dates might have differed a little bit. But the problem was, and we have to be willing to embrace this, that there were borrowed ideas into the emerging journey of this people who became the Hebrew people, right? Descended, coming up through uh, Abraham, became the Hebrews, and then of course became Israel after Jacob, and uh, became Jews because of Judah. So, so there's this progression coming through, but, but within there are these ideas that, that, that if you allow that to shape your image of God, the danger is that you find a God of religion that really is no different to other gods. Now, I've said this to you before, I'll say this again, and I'll say it a thousand times more. That if the root of, of religious belief is the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, and therefore the expression of your religion, even if you have Jesus, is still rooted in the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, so what we have is Jesus as our sacrifice instead of virgins or children. Then your model is you are rewarded for doing good and you're punished for doing bad. And my argument, you've heard me say this before, but I keep saying it because I want to ingrain it within your spirit, is that's the model of every other religion everywhere in the world from every culture that's ever been, and my question has been on that, so what makes our God different? Well, he, he became one of us. Yeah, that's wonderful, and I accept that. That's because we're beginning to embrace a new covenant model, but then what do we say when he became one of us? Well, God was still angry, God was so angry that he had to punish sin, and so he punished his son in our place, and he becomes the ritual child sacrifice, so God's not mad, so God doesn't forgive us, God only overlooks, right? He takes away the reason. He doesn't forgive us because you can't forgive and then require a payment. Do you understand? We've talked about that, haven't we? You can't forgive and require a payment. That's not forgiveness. That's retribution. So we would have to say Jesus didn't die for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for the retribution. But forgiveness comes without anything necessary to enact that forgiveness. Now, there are ways that we receive and that we experience that forgiveness, but what I'm trying to show you is we have to be really, really careful about our models of who God is. So, I wanted to bring into the debate here that not only we have Yahweh Elohim, but we have this, um, we have this other one. I'm gonna put him up here because I think it's important. I am, which is not a cat food or a dog food. I am's is not named after the I am. 
Now I want to show you something interesting, okay? Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Again, I'm going to read this from the New King James Version. The, 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 John chapter 8 starts with the, um, with the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. <coughs> there are some who dispute that that first portion of John chapter 8 um, wasn't there originally. I... One thing I've found about looking at, at what's included, what's not included, is um, uh, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery who, who accusation is removed and is so releasing that it was far too releasing for some people to find place for it because even some of the early church fathers couldn't handle that kind of issue of where, of where the law says she should be punished and, and she's guilty and, you know, let him be without sin, be the first to cast the storm, fine. But Jesus removes all accusation and then he just says, on your way, you're free. So this is that chapter. This is chapter 8 of John. But where it goes on to really is, is Jesus being questioned uh, about who he thinks he is. So, so this is where we pick it up. And you'll see why. John chapter 8, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. Now, now, again, bear in mind that when Jesus comes on the scene, um, he redefines to some degree this. And the terminology he uses the most is the terminology Father. Okay? Now, now, we've never had that terminology throughout all of the Old Testament journey. In fact, we're still stuck in the Jehovah Elohim concept of God and haven't even really grasped this revelation that came to Moses of the, of the I Am. But now along comes Jesus and from the very beginning, um, even, even his first, the first recorded encounters with him uh, where he's left behind in the temple, I must be about my father's business. Not meaning Joseph, but meaning Abba, Daddy. This, this revelation of God that flows through this, that is within all this, but isn't represented by this. So along comes Jesus and he starts talking about, about his father. Um, one of the greatest, well, there are two, two things that I think are fascinating on that whole father thing. One is the genealogy in Matthew where it takes you all the way back and then takes you back and it comes to Adam and it says, and, and, and Adam, who was the son of God. The other one in Luke takes you the other way to Jesus who was the Christ, who was the son of God. So, so Jesus who's called the last Adam because he comes to represent Adam to, to restore what Adam lost, uh, to reconcile what had happened through Adam they called the two Adams, so, so each of them, that there is a mirroring going on, you know, across these thousands of years, there's a mirroring. Um, and so Adam, the son of God, well, if Adam was the son of God, what did that make God to Adam? Made him father. So, well, is that really true? Well, just bear in mind what it says in, in Genesis chapter 2, that the man saw, God saw the man was alone, so it's not good for the man to be alone. Puts him to sleep, takes a rib, makes the woman, brings the woman to the man. 
And he says something very interesting. He says now, he brought the woman to the man and he said that, that they too will become one flesh. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. Well, in the context of where that's written, where do you go with the man, Adam, leaving his father and his mother's even another conversation, which is wonderful. Uh, who's his father and mother who is leaving to be joined to his wife? Well, he has no earthly father, so we have to be talking about Adam's relationship with God was the relationship of son to father, right? Not creature to God, son to father. Now, I believe that the whole story of, um, of Genesis chapter 3 and all that happened then, that the key thing that was broken was the relationship. So suddenly now, Adam's afraid, and so what was his father becomes God, and that relationship of father to son is lost, and now we have, we have creator to created. We have subject to higher power. And that all begins to emerge from Genesis chapter 3, a different relationship with God. Now, I don't believe that, that God turned his back on humanity. We've already talked about that. that. You cannot prove that from Scripture. God's still talking to them. He's still turning up. He's still visiting them. But the relationship had changed. So, so the issue is, we can have an image of God that's not an image of God at all. It's actually an image of a deity that ultimately, certainly in part, has become the invention of our own journey, the invention of our own thinking, uh, and then who we shape to comply with our journey. Our God said to us, kill all them, because you're supposed to take the land they're living in because you don't have a village. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have their village? So go and kill all them so you can have their village. So can you see how we can then begin to create God in an image that always supports who we are and where we're heading? So it becomes the God of Israel, right? The God of Israel, not the God of everybody else. And when you get to Jesus, this is still going on. How can these Gentiles, non-Jews experience the God of Israel because he's not their God, he's our God and he is exclusive to us, not inclusive, exclusive. So you can see how religious patterns follow that model still and become exclusive and not inclusive, right? So we have the whole denominational thing you know, starts because somebody has a dream, then it becomes exclusive. If you're not this, if you're not that, if you don't worship in this way, if you don't dress in this way, if you don't baptize in this way, or you don't take communion in this way, and you get the exclusivity. So, so those seeds are there. The reason those seeds are there is because when our relationship shifts to man and God, rather than son and father, that's where all that stuff comes in, Okay. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't talk about Elohim and he doesn't talk about Yahweh. Now when you think how critical Elohim and Yahweh were to Jewish culture and along comes the Messiah and never mentions them and he doesn't preach and teach about them, he just talks about the Father so they have to come to a conclusion. The conclusion was he's, he's a blasphemer. He's a heretic. 
Um, because we don't know this God who he's talking about because he claims to have a relationship with this God that, that is not possible to have. And so the familiarity was an issue also to Jewish culture when Jesus came on the scene because in a culture where you didn't even write the name, so in our terms, you know, we would, they would not write Yahweh, they would write what would be, is it W... Is it H? Is it Yahweh? I can't, it's gone out of my head. See, the three. Whatever they did, <coughs> they wouldn't even write the name. Too holy. Out of bounds. Too holy. Uh, and the only way you're going to have any acceptance is, you know, all this stuff we're going to put on you of which the law was part. And along comes Jesus and uses he uses the term father. So you can see how there's this conflict now. Why? Because he's actually, he's talking about a God they don't know. And he's talking about a God with whom they're not familiar because they've missed this. And what they've leaned to is, yep, Elohim, Jehovah turned up for us. Yahweh was there. He turned up. They missed this. Now, now, what should have happened after Moses is this should have dominated Old Testament writing. It's that immediacy that says something about the present, the father, the relationship, a different relationship, but, but they miss that point. So, so, Jesus, if I honor myself, uh, verse 54 of John chapter 8, it is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Isn't that interesting? It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. My Father, he, your God. So not our God, not our Father at this point, but he's, he's pointing out, to me is my Father. To you, he is your God. And we have a problem. So verse 55, you ha yet you have not known him, but I know him, and if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Listen to this, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, uh, and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham saw my day, and he was glad. Now, you remember we talked about the gospel didn't start at the cross. It went both ways. We talked about the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus is saying, <coughs> Abraham saw my day and he was glad. Why? Because I am. If I am, then I am here. And wherever you go through here, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Same, same encounter. I am, I am. So Abraham sees the I am of Moses, and he sees the I am who is Jesus. Now, of course, he didn't see Jesus physically. I would propose to you that Abraham saw I am when God made a covenant with him and said, I'm making a covenant with myself. You'll become the beneficiary that God, that Abraham saw I am when he was on the mountain with his son 
And God said, you really think I want you to do a child sacrifice to appease my anger? Don't be silly. He was the same I am, the same I am that turned up at Passover. Abraham saw my day, he said, and he was glad. Then the Jews said to him, verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, and and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So not only now do we have Jesus talking about the Father, but we have Jesus now locating us back to this experience of Moses in the desert where we have three possible gods, Elohim, Yahweh, or I am. They're not all necessarily real because remember, just because a person has a God doesn't make that God spiritually, physically, eternally real. It just means that's what you've invented. Now, I am very monotheistic. I absolutely believe that there is one God and Father of all. I believe he's the Abba of Jesus, and I believe who he talks about himself being. He is the I am. So he's never been the I was. He's always the I am. So as time moves on, he still exists as the I am. The I am is the Father that we talk about, that Jesus talks about. It's the same one, okay? So he says to them, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. (coughs) Israel wrote, the violent response of the Jews to Jesus' I am statement indicates they clearly understood what he was declaring. Jesus was equating himself with the I am title that God in inverted commas gave himself in Exodus 3 verse 4. So he was saying, I am that person who talked to Moses. Therefore, I am that person who talked to Abraham. Therefore, I am that person who was in the beginning at creation. That's what they were getting mad about. Because that stood to undermine their images of who they believed God was. If Jesus had merely wanted to say he existed before Abraham's time, he would have said, before Abraham, I was. Do you understand that? I'll read that again. If Jesus had merely wanted to say he existed before Abraham's time, he would have said, before Abraham, I was. But the Greek words translated was in the case of Abraham and am in the case of Jesus <coughs> are very different. Words. So before Abraham was, that's the past tense, I am, the immediate present tense is what Jesus was declaring. So he was stating that I am the expression of I am. So there are two phrases critical in in Jesus' expression of helping us to understand who God is supposed to be, and it was Father and I am. Father and I am connects us with the root Forget all the stuff that's gone wrong. It connects us with the root. It connects us with the garden. It connects us with Moses. And it frees us from all the confusion that has arisen here in the attempts to create God in an image 
that Jesus was not upholding or reinforcing. So listen to this. Jesus used the same phrase, I am, in seven declarations about himself. Now, of course, seven, seven in Scripture is interesting because when that crops up, it's always the number of perfection. And it's fascinating how many times a thing turns up seven times, like the phrase New Covenant. Uh, just in the same way we talked about when two are mentioned, it means because you have to make a decision. There's two things, okay? So, so seven times he says this about himself. In all seven, he combines I am with tremendous metaphors which express his relationship towards the world. All, all of them are in the book of John. Let me give you, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. These are John 6, John 8. I am the door of the sheep, John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, again, John chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And I am the true vine, John 15, verse 1 uh, and verse 5. The reason I've raised this, because it's important to understand as we kind of trigger into the New Testament, that Jesus did not come upholding, promoting, or supporting existing views of God and Israel's role in the great scheme of things. He didn't. The, 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 I, I would now contend the term that many of you will hear, Judeo-Christian, is a false term. It's a misnomer. This is not Judeo-Christianity. This is Christianity, right? Not Judeo-Christianity. Now, did Judaism play a part? Yes. Did the Hebrews play a part? Yes. There was a, a delivery of this thing. But within all this, the golden thread that runs through doesn't bring us into something that blends Hebrew-Jewish concepts of God with Jesus' revelation of God. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's the problem. We have grown up with a blended version. Therefore, we can go kill people and starve people and... You know, do what because we're in the name of God, where well, we're doing it in the name of righteousness. And so we had slaves and justified it according to Scripture. Well, as long as you look after your slaves in the Bible, you can have your slaves. Like somehow the Scripture was justifying slavery and all those kind of things. Or, or you can go, you know, just war is another one. Now, war's horrible, and sometimes war happens, stuff happens. Once you get into the arena of this is a just war. Well, yeah, try telling the innocent children and mothers and, you know, grandmas and patients in hospitals and, you know, little Joe looking after his sheep that this is a just war. You've got to die because this was really just. What we mean by that is our God has sanctioned us to take care of this. So all of those things come when we uphold what is a blend of Judeo-Christian belief. Now, I th I'm not anti-Jewish. I thank God for the roots. You know, Paul said salvation is of the Jews. What he meant was it doesn't come from the Jewish system, but it comes out of the Jewish bloodline. And within that line, we have a revelation of the golden thread, which was always Jesus, is still Jesus, but he was different names. He was the Word in the beginning. He was the I Am. He was the golden pot in, that went through the animals in, in Abraham's covenant. He was all of these things all the time bringing us to this revelation. So that's a very important point. 
that Jesus did not come upholding, promoting, or supporting existing views of God and Israel's role in the great scheme of things. If he had, they wouldn't have crucified him, would they? Why did they crucify him? Because he was giving them an image of God that not only were they not familiar with, but they didn't want to accept because they'd already created their image of God. So instead of saying, well, you know, Jesus, the jury's out, we... We're open to new ideas. They said, no, you cast out demons by the devil that's in you. You don't do it by God. And so all these conversations were going on. But he was not supportive of any of the Old Testament writers' agendas. But reintroduced us to the one present in the beginning in the creation story. So you don't find Jesus supporting the agendas of the Old Testament writers. Now thank God for the Old Testament writers and for supplying us with the information and very often the revelation that's helpful to us. But you do not find Jesus, when he came on the earth, supportive of any of the Old Testament writers' agendas. So they have a problem here in Israel because it's like he's not supporting what we believe is the agenda of our writers. He's not promoting Yahweh. He's not promoting Elohim. Suddenly he's come on the scene and not only is he talking about the Father, but he's now using terminology that we have only ever used with Moses' experience in the desert. He's calling himself, I am. See, what Jesus was, was again, he was the imprint of the God we were always supposed to know, the one true creator, the Abba, the Father. So, let's just move on to a couple of other thoughts before we, we close. New Testament book order. The, the New Testament is not written in chronological order. The letters of Paul are not even in chronological order. They, they start from the biggest and work through when you look at, at which books were written first, the order, it, it becomes interesting because you see emerging in that the same pattern that was emerging way back here. So we have Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, and then we come Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and we're coming through First and Second Samuel in the time of the kings and the prophets. You see exactly the same pattern is starting to emerge again when you move into the New Testament. Let me say a couple of things just, just for information and, and knowledge. That uh, the earliest works that became part of the New Testament are actually not the Gospels. It's actually uh, the letters of Paul were earlier than the Gospels. So the Gospels weren't written until um, the first ones, uh, Mark and, and Luke and Matthew in the 60s, okay? Okay. Uh, where Paul starts writing really back in the, in, the, in the 40s and into the 50s, Paul is writing his letters. So um, the earliest of the books in the New Testament is disputed. Some, some say it's 1 Thessalonians. Um, I can understand that because 1 Thessalonians is very much a book trying to encourage people who are being persecuted for the faith that they've now held. And you think, yeah, I get that culturally. If this is in the, in the late 40s or early 50s, you know, we're, we're very close to Jesus' death and resurrection. The emerging church is finding persecution. So yeah, that's, you'd talk about that, wouldn't you? Makes sense. Um, the other possible first book, which I 
I like to believe is the first book, but you know, uh, some scholars would agree, some wouldn't. Uh, is the book of Galatians, which was potentially written in 49 AD. So if you think Jesus dies 30 or 33, we're now at 49. We're pretty close to, to all of this going on. And Paul writes Galatians, and I have some things to say about that in a moment. Because what fascinates me is what the content of Galatians, it's like, oh heck, we could be all the way back here. I mean, literally. We could be right back in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, and I'll explain that to you in, in, in a minute. Um, so, uh, the Gospels, let me just talk about the Gospels for a minute. The, the, most contemporary scholars regard Mark as being the first of the Gospels. That was written in the 60s, the early 60s, not 1960, the early 60s, 60 AD. And uh, it's most commonly held that, that Matthew and Luke used Mark as their main source for writing. Now, we don't know really who wrote the Gospels in the term of actually writing the words, but they were accredited to, to, to Mark, uh, Luke, John, and Matthew. Matthew and John were, of course, disciples of Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, and uh, John, the disciple, who it says who Jesus loved. He loved the others as well, but special relationship. Doesn't mean we have no record that they actually authored the books in the sense of writing them. But what is interesting is when you look at the first 200 years, first 300 years, if if it was not commonly held that the material was true to John and Matthew, somebody in that first hundred years would have said, hey, hang on a minute. But you won't find anybody um, contending in that first 150 years after Jesus and, and the beginning of the church uh, with John and Matthew or Mark or Luke not being the, the source, let's call it the source, of the material that was then written in books that we, we now know. So, so, so Mark seems to have had the bigger influence and then uh, whoever wrote Matthew and, and, and Luke, and some would say Luke actually wrote Luke because it would seem from what he puts in the book of Luke and what he has seen, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts, that, that he himself had done the investigation. Luke was a traveler with, with, with Paul but they use material from that and something also called Q. I'm just giving you some background information here. Q um, is from a German word, quell, or I don't know how the Germans say it. I might do the French, but um, basically it was, it, was, it was the oral stuff that had been passed down that was considered to be extremely reliable, that was a source that the gospel writers used as well. So they used Mark because of the content of his thing and gathered information around that, which is why there are lots of similarities in Matthew and Luke that tie in with the story in Mark. And then this cue was like there were people who said stuff and knew stuff that were, if you like, in our day, interviewed and talked to. And that became the material that, that, that gave us Matthew uh, and Luke. But Mark, if you want to know which is the first of the Gospels, Mark is the first written Gospel, okay? Uh, and then John comes a lot later. John comes way up in the 90s. Okay, so John, John is way, way um, after that. Uh, 
Um, what is interesting, though, is when, when were the Gospels written? And again, this, this is just a bit of interesting information for you before I, I tie it together. Um, we know historically that, um, that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. We know that's a historical fact. Titus, Prince Titus, came and destroyed Jerusalem. Not one stone was left standing on another. The temple was destroyed. And he desecrated the holy place in the temple, which I and others would believe that that was the fulfillment of some of the prophecies that I was taught as a young person were going to happen somewhere in the future. But I think those prophecies happened at um, AD 70. Now, the reason I mention that is that for such an important event in the history of, of the Jewish people, if the Gospels, as some argue, oh, well, you know, how can you believe the Gospel? They were written years after, you know, by people who knew nothing. Here's the problem. Not one of the Gospels mentions the destruction of Jerusalem. And wouldn't you think, if you were Jewish writers, following Jewish history, writing about events that happened in Israel at that time, that you wouldn't have thought, just forgot to mention that Jerusalem was completely destroyed and there were crosses of more than 2,000 people crucified outside the city. Uh, and yeah, and then the Jews ran away and holed up in a place called Masada where there was a, um, there was a siege for two years and then they all committed suicide. And that oh, just slipped my mind. Um, so I'm saying that to you because that one fact... Um, really for me proves the case that, that those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, were written before 70 AD. Now, so why is that important? Because the further you get away from an incident, the more you can argue that their recollection was not accurate, which is people tell, how could they have, you know. How, but what it suggests is that whoever was involved in the writing of these Gospels were not only in contact with the people who had experienced these things, but were probably themselves contemporaries of the life of Christ or just after the life of Christ because between him dying in 30 to 33 AD and this huge event in AD 70, all that stuff had to be written down. So I would propose to you that that suggests that we have a pretty accurate record of the events that took place in the life of Jesus and the miracles and that there's, there's good grounds for believing and trusting the record that was written. Um, now, there's some agenda stuff in there because the Jews and Matthew's the most Jewish of the Jewish writers. So whoever wrote Matthew, he can tell he's a dyed-in-the-wool Jew because that's a very Jewish book. Uh, Luke's not so much Jewish, because Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a non-Jew. So you get a kind of a more stood back, um, you know, more pragmatic view of what's going on, which runs into Acts. But Matthew's the most Jewish. So yet, there's still some agenda. You still have to read it through the lens of when we talked about Di was gay because he didn't have to work and he got paid, you know. Well, you've still got to read stuff through that lens, but what I'm telling you is that the root of the material is really good and sound, and don't let people argue with you. Just, that was all just put together fantasies and stories by people, you know, trying to push this new thing years after the event. No, it wasn't, okay? 
they're wrong. And that, that one factor alone is a very, very strong argument um, in that case. Uh, the other thing also, for those who know anything, the Gospels contain numerous attacks on, on a, a sect called the Sadducees, which were part of Judaism. Uh, and they were wiped out at the destruction of the temple. So when, the, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the Sadducees um, were wiped out. So, so later writers would not have had much to say about the Sadducees because they wouldn't have known the Sadducees because the Sadducees had been taken off the map. But their intimate understanding in the Gospels of the Pharisees and the Sadducees means that it had to have been written when the Sadducees were prominent in Jewish society, which means pre-AD 70. So I said all that just to really give you some sense of confidence that this argument that the Gospels were just written hundreds of years after by people who didn't know anything and it was all made up is nonsense. You know, the evidence is there that these are good and reliable. So, um, in, in terms of um, also the Bible, I think this is important for you because seeing as we're talking about you know, the Bible itself, the New Testament, um, the actual content of the New Testament, okay, let's forget the canon in the sense of, you know, Chris talked about the canon, how it was decided that there would be 27 books in the New Testament. You know, there were other writings that were considered to be part of that canon, and we've discussed about whether canon was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but whatever it was, the truth is the writings that we do have are interesting because from all the various pieces of manuscript that have been found, there is a real consistency in what is written. Now, you have to make a decision what you believe about what is written, but there's a consistency in what is written. Um, and even if you were just to try and piece, if you lost all the Greek manuscripts, but then trolled through all the books that were written by the early fathers, you could almost put together the, the, the New Testament as we understand it, all the books of the New Testament as they are written. So, so I think there is quite a good um, record of consistency as to, their, as to what they are. The question is, how do we relate to what they are? Uh, what's also interesting, I think these are just some facts as I'm giving you at the moment. There are far fewer witnesses to classical texts than to the Bible. And unlike the New Testament, where the earliest witnesses are often within a couple of decades of the original, the earliest existing manuscripts of most classical texts were written about a millennium after their composition. So Tacitus was the main Roman historian. Um, but... When he, um, the annals of the Roman Empire, which are AD 116, uh, they come from a single manuscript that was written in 850 AD. So nobody questions Tacitus' account of the Roman Empire, but our oldest written account of it comes from 850 AD, which is, which is you know, it's, it's six, seven hundred years later than what we have for the Bible. You've got the same thing with Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, originally composed in the first century. But where we get our information is from nine manuscripts written in the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th centuries. So, um, you know, even when you go back to Greek literature, Homer's Iliad, 650 copies originated about 1,000 years after the original copy. Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars, written in 50 BC, survives only in nine copies that were written in the 8th century. And so I could go on, 
that the fact is the evidence for our New Testament writings is, is so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, um, the auth authenticity of which no one questions. No one questions Tacitus' history of Rome, but it was written probably 700 years after most of the Bible was written. So I'm saying this to give you some confidence in the sense that <coughs> what we have to work with the material is pretty consistent and pretty sound. Our problem is not verifying whether people wrote it and it was there. Our problem, just like with this, is interpretation <coughs> and how we view it and how we see it. So why might that be important? Well, what's important to me about, about the order in which the New Testament was written is because it will reveal whether the same issues which dogged the development of the recorded journey of humanity to, with, and for God in the Old Testament continues in the New. And this in turn determines whether we must examine the New Testament with the same boldness of questions that we've been imposing over the Old Testament. So I said all that to bring you to that amazing point. That we do the same with the New as we did with the Old. So, just a couple of thoughts and then I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. Let me just... Galatians, I believe, uh, was Paul's first book. It doesn't, doesn't matter you know, whether it was First Thessalonians. But if we just look at Galatians, it gives you an insight into, into what was happening with this early church. So we're now, we're now in the 40s. We're potentially about 49 AD. So, so 16 to 19 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is writing this to this emerging church, uh, writing to the Galatians and... Um, Galatians 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, the same process that brought the Elohists and the Yahwists and the Deuteronomists and the priestly writers has already started by 49 AD. Foolish Galatians, what the heck are you doing? You've had a revelation of, in this case, it wasn't the I am. In this case, it was Abba, the Father, who is the I am, who Jesus declared to be the I am, and we're 16 to 19 years after the resurrection, and this process is already starting. Galatians, uh, let me see, Galatians 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God... You serve those which by nature are not gods. Now that sounds very complicated. What he means is because you didn't know who this Abba of Jesus really was, you started making it up. And what's going to be your model for making it up? All of this stuff, right? So what does the God of Jesus look like to most people? It looks like the God of Israel, it looks like the God in Canaan. It looks like the God of the flood. It looks, why? Because we started to make him up because you've not known this God is what Paul was saying. Okay, so. 
Then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by, which by nature are not God's. But now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to these weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And here's what he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, he's saying you're trying to do all this stuff again because you've missed the point. I am afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. I've, I've taken you this journey, obviously it's not a finished story, because I wanted to get you to the point to realize how very quickly, if we don't stay focused on this golden thread, understanding the I am, understanding the Abba of Jesus, how quickly we begin to reshape God. So we then begin to, just like the ancient cultures of Israel, we begin to borrow stuff. One of the things we borrow, there's a word some of you will be familiar with who've been around for a while, is the word propitiation. That should not be in the Bible. It's, there's not even a Greek equivalent to propitiation. Propitiation is a Latin word that is associated with appeasing the anger of the gods. But it snuck into our understanding because we were still bound with this idea of appeasing the anger of the gods. So all this stuff starts to sweep in. So, so, so we have an issue that Paul says, don't be bewitched, right? Don't let this thing cut in on you. Don't sacrifice the gospel that you've been given. Don't turn back to these weak and beggarly, way. he calls them weak and beggarly elements of trying to create this God who represents all of this because he said it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So, I'm going to finish. Um, so the order, I've said this before because it's really part of what really impresses me. Paul writes that first and then I, I could take you through the New Testament to show you that his constant battle is against people trying to bolt all of this back onto this gospel that has emerged. To bolt all this way of seeing God onto the new revelation of Jesus and all that he is. To try and take these principles and make that the same as what Jesus brought about the Father in his attempts to bring us back to the I am. Now, within the New Testament, there's wonderful things from Paul. Now, when you start to put them in the time and the culture and the context, you realize many of his things are advice that are specific in a context. But wonderful revelations then about how we've been set free in the gospel that is now a gospel of grace. How as we've been knitted back to the Father, we come back to the tree of life. And we're not going back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let me finish because we've, we've talked for long enough. Um, the significance of John writing last, I think is amazing because John writes last. His, his books are in 90 through 95, John's books. And I told you last week, he writes last because he, he's, I, I see him as kind of looking on, uh, seeing what's going on, and then he pitches into the debate 
last of what we have as the canon of Scripture. And uh, his opening words in that, because his gospel is written first, is, okay, here's the deal, in the beginning. So he's, he's like, okay, we've got to take this right back. Come on, we, we have to strip this baby right back, because where you've taken it is becoming unrecognizable to where it's supposed to be. So John says, let's take this baby right back. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The world was made by him. Nothing that has been has been made without him. But the word became flesh and lived among us. He's now brought us right up to speed. And the law came by Moses, was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. He gives us suddenly the picture of before time ever began, grace and truth was the measurement. Not judgment and condemnation, grace and truth were the measurement. And that the word brought grace and truth with him into the world and that that grace and truth has never left the world because God has never left people. It's just that people's images of God, just like with Adam in the garden, slid away from Father and I am to Elohim and Jehovah and then we became people who serve God and worship God and have to be in God's plan rather than children who are inheritors with their father who works with them, who walks with them, who loves them, who helps them. So David's out there thinking, this is amazing because I used to believe that but now here's what I believe, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He feeds me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemy. And David says this, here's the deal. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, David says there's nothing I can do that can ever stop the goodness and mercy of God following me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or in other words, I will keep finding that sacred space. And I've often said, if goodness and mercy are following you, it means you're moving. And if goodness and mercy are following you, that means that if you fall, you get run over. Not by circumstance, not by judgment, not by condemnation, you get run over by goodness and mercy. You fall, goodness and mercy runs over you. That's the golden thread that runs through. That's what was already being lost within 16 to 19 years of the emergence of this gospel. But then John says, look, here's the deal. Let's get back to the beginning and that's what we're trying to do with you. Let's reshape what it is that we think from the very beginning and then John launches into what is a very, very different gospel to the other three gospels. And he's the one who's talking about, I am, I am, I am. He's got a revelation of who Jesus is. He starts at the beginning, before the beginning. He points to the golden thread, and then he recenters the truth about God, his nature, and his purpose. The whole point of us doing what we're doing is to try to recenter the truth about God, his nature and his purpose and hopefully we're doing at least a job that he's showing you that there are some things we have moved away from and some things that we have moved into and that now by grace we are fiercely going to guard what it is that we've moved into that Paul put in these words it is for freedom that Christ set you free why have you become entangled again with the yoke of bondage and why have you started to create God 
in an image that you had been delivered from. So thank God for all the story that brings us here. But in it all, as we understand it, the golden thread is still at work. And uh, at the core of it is this, this here. I am. I am the ever-present one. All right, I think we've said enough. So... Thank you for being here, and I speak blessings over you, and uh, as I said on Saturday, we are going to break bread and have communion this, um, this Saturday night, so, uh, you know, come receive a blessing, look for that sacred space, and, uh, and uh, we'll do our best to bring whatever it is God's put on our hearts. All right, we're done, bless you, thank you. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.